listening to Commerce Talk with Smart OSC. Hello and welcome to Commerce Talk with Smart OSC. I'm your host, Peter Cowan, Content Marketing Executive at Smart OSC. Regular listeners will already recognize that today's episode is going to be a little bit different, as it's my voice you're hearing, not Adrian Wickham's. This episode is also unique, as we're celebrating our 10th episode and roughly one year of Commerce Talk. To mark the occasion, we've put together a little best-of episode, featuring a compilation of some of our favorite expert insights from our guests over the past 12 months. So sit back, relax, and enjoy, as some of the brightest and best of the e-commerce world drop knowledge and their top tips for success in digital business. For our first episode, we kicked off with a look at personalization with Haley Worling, co-founder of the Sheet Society, and Mark Bartza, an independent consultant who was number 15 in the top 50 in e-commerce list in 2019. In this clip, Adrian asked Haley and Mark about how much personalization impacts their own shopping experience. How much of a difference does that personalized experience make for you in, in general, or, or is it something that, that, that you really tend to look for depending on what you're actually buying? Yeah, for me, it depends on what I'm shopping for. I think you can almost get quite gimmicky with levels of personalization. Um, you know, there's a few wine brands out there that will go through a questionnaire, like, what do you like to do on the weekend? What's your favorite movie? And then, you know, recommend a wine to you at the end. And I think those experiences, um, might just be for engagement purposes not necessarily personalization experience Mm -hmm. um so for me it needs to be really practical um and it needs to actually solve the job of of what it needs to be done and um you know we've got a bed builder on our website where you can physically um you know see the bed coming to life with the different colors and the different sizes and the different items that you're adding into that um and that to us serves that core function we brought that further into um, augmented reality. Um, and that for us was just a little bit of fun. Um, and so you, you can get what you need on that 2D version, but if you wanted to play around with it a little bit more, there's that extra option. So to, for me, it's about finding that right balance between um, gimmicky and really worth your time to answer those questions yeah. or um, build out what yeah. you like. Mm-hmm. And I would take that, I, I would, I'd agree with that, but also, I think often, you know, I'm just getting to the explicit versus implicit, but the, the, the best personalization can often be the ones you don't notice. Um, mm. You know, like I, I was chatting with the, the CMO of, I probably shouldn't mention who, but like a, 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 a large online um, kind of, I guess, lifestyle fashion retailer. And, and, you know, and they have a very large catalog and he was saying, you know, discovery is their biggest challenge. But, you know, if you've got like, you know, let's say 50,000 items, you know, 50,000 SKUs in stock, how do you help people discover the right one? And that's, that's a lot of that's a personalization challenge. And they've actually had like a, a, a team of data scientists working on that, trying to figure out how do we expose that? And that comes down to even, you know, pre- pretty much every visual merchandising tool on the market these days, be it Search Spring or whatever, you know, Clever, all those tools, they, they all have some sort of degree of personalized versus, um, visual merchandising functionality. Um, and, and that's, you know, that's really important for some stores, um, where, you know, particularly if you have a large SKU count. And that, that's the type of personalization that creates a really customized experience, but, but the user is probably un, la, mostly or largely or, or completely unaware that that is going on. 
We jetted over to Singapore for episode two to speak to Eddie Tang, head of marketing and digital business manager at ASUS Singapore. We dove deep into a trend that has massively accelerated amid the pandemic, providing a B2C experience for B2B buyers. Eddie told Adrian about the first steps for translating a B2C experience for B2B transactions. What would you say are some of the most important first steps when a business is looking about replicating that B2C about replicating a B2C experience for their B2B buyers? Uh, again, another good question. So actually, uh, to, to me, I, I feel that the very first step is to, first of all, identify whether that business process can be can, can be translated in, in, into, into a digital uh, method or way. So uh, because um, translating B2C experience to, for B2B buyers is, 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 is a tricky thing because some of B2B purchases, uh, even regardless of, the time of the day, the day and age we are in, um, some of it is still, you, you definitely require some form of interact, human interactions within them. So I wouldn't say that the, all, all such B2C experience can be extended to B2B for, for all, all, all kinds of um, transactions. So that's why the very first, first step I mentioned is to first of all, identify whether these transactions can be replicated in, in, in a sense that, um, um, and does it match the B2C way of shopping or, or, or purchasing an item? So again, this, this, uh, I would say this is the very, very first step in, in thinking about that. Then when moving downwards, uh, the, the thing is trying to identify the audit business processes or that entails and whether if we can have system processes replicating those, uh, supporting the, those uh, business processes that I just mentioned, then mm-hmm. that, that basically will form up whether it's whether a business is suitable or, or capable of replicating the B2C experience to B2B buyers itself. And lastly, not forgetting the, the nature of a product. For our instances, consumer requires a, a laptop, desktop, even mobile phones. Um, and that applies the same to the businesses itself. So again, three things. So these are three things that, that, that I would say that you should look at when you're designing this. Jerry Smith, the COO of Ogilvy Group Asia and the CEO of Ogilvy Consulting Asia, was our next guest and he delivered an insight-filled 40 minutes. Commerce in an era of disruption was the topic of the day and one that continues to be relevant. In this clip, come for the digital business insights, stay for a mouth-watering KitKat anecdote. But are there any examples of, of commerce business models that you that that you think are great at creating value but very poor poor at extracting it? Yeah. Well, before we talk about the models and the channels, I, I think it's um, I see the main issue actually here within organisations themselves. Most businesses are siloed and lack cross-functional collaboration. In fact, they're not really aligned to the same transformational goals within their own organisations. They have different KPIs and are often on different timelines. And so what you've got is different parts of the organization moving at different speeds and with different goals. And that does not move the organization efficiently or effectively towards future ready. And I think most are still heavily skewed to designing and selling products through traditional channels. And they're not able to adapt to the, the speed of change that we see at the moment. So I think the, the 
where they're, where they're not extracting value is where, they, where they're still pushing hard with this sort of, they will build, you know, build, they will come. Then they're taking the easier option of looking at efficiencies rather than actually creating great customer experiences. And as I said earlier on, at some point, you can't extract any more out of that. And you will always be overtaken by a company that can provide better customer experience. So, you know, really efficient, great, but not great customer experience, difficult. Now, the other problem, of course, is if you create great customer experience, that's quite expensive to do. And if you're not efficient, then that's not helpful either because, you know, you're just burning money really at the end of the day. The advantages in technology and the changes brought about since the pandemic have seen a sort of rise in D to C. And I see that that is an area and a model where I think that's quite interesting because it gives you the ability to react to changing consumer expectations because you have the data. You have a, a direct relationship with your customers and you can offer often unique brand experiences if you're future ready. So I think the key to that is to get to, uh, to that future ready state. You need a, a roadmap to do that. Perhaps more importantly, though, D2C provides ownership of that valuable data and allows you to innovate and personalize an offer based on um, sort of data-driven strategies around what your consumers really want to do. And I think most brands still fail to do that well. They are not putting the data to use as well as they could be. Sure, some are doing some cross-selling and upselling, but many are really just using the data to drive, let's say, reporting or maybe some innovation but you know they're not really differentiating in experiences and i still think not enough of this all by consumers at scale in real time good example that i like and you you asked me to give an example so i will do it and i will name a brand is is the kit kat chocolatery i think that's really really i think that's innovative it creates a really unique experience it's very personal you're creating new product in real time, the ability to create on and offline, it could be a gifting experience, it could just be for yourself. Uh, there's a bit of craftsmanship in there, there's a bit of playfulness in there. I actually really think that this, for, for what would have been deemed to be, you know, an FMCG product at the end of the day, this is, this is actually quite, quite um, a revolutionary concept and I think this for me I think this is a, is a really nice thing you'd sort of design your own break customized product I mean I think it's a creative delight really I think it's a really nice uh, you can see it in your high street you can see it online you can be involved and send it to your friends I mean it's very social and in the whole aspect of it a really big leap forward for a brand I think in in its thinking and its ability to 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 bring that to market who doesn't love a KitKat CT Corp is one of Indonesia's biggest conglomerates and it was our pleasure to speak to the company's Bavin Patel about digital transformation. We asked Bavin for three top tips on digital transformation, but he's a man with so much experience and knowledge to drop that he kindly gave us a fourth. If, if you had to boil everything down into, I guess, what would be the top three tips for, you know, for anyone who's listening who is sitting out on this digitalization journey or dreading the meeting that they have with the, with the executive next week or, or or next month to talk about this is how i'm going to take you take you on this journey would that would there be would there be a real three that, that you could boil it down that you would like people to take away yeah i mean um quite hard to put it as three but i'll try to put it as many as three 
But, you know, I think number one would be definitely start regardless of what part of digital transformation you're in, whether it be e-commerce, digital marketing, content-driven, media, whatever industry. When you're sort of applying a digital transformation journey, uh, make sure you have a very strong uh, business case uh, and the use cases within them business cases are very relevant. You can use that for, you know, you can use that definitely for influencing stakeholders as well. And, and, and what I mean by that is make sure it's data-driven and not opinionated, especially when we're, like I already said earlier, they already know we're about to be disrupted. So they will have their sort of guard up in regards to you know, what value is this going to bring. So use cases, user journey, and customer experience is all covered in that sort of one tip, you know, looking at it from end-to-end, UX, UI, product features, it doesn't always have to be ROI on the PL, but what is the use case and how is it going to drive the business? Number two would be, you know, be adaptable, be willing to change. So sometimes we're always good at pointing the fingers as, as a traditional businesses. And you ask the question that, you know, they're, they're not ready to adapt, but I think we need to adapt as well as digital native individuals. And we need to put ourselves in the mind frame of them. And we have to be adaptable and not so rigid and sort of be like, you know, stick our path that this is the only way digital can happen and, 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 and you know, be mindfulness in, in, in what the core business really wants to do and how you can apply that. And sort of number three is, you know, have a really strong organization framework of how you're going to really operate this business or how you're going to really make sure this is there for the long term. You know, even if you're not creating a new digital business or you're not creating a new e-commerce platform, but you just want to run a new campaign, how are you going to make it last longer when it grows? Is it enough that there's only one of you? Do you need two or three more people to help you out? What does that team look like that's going to run after that strategy that you want to do? I kind of see that a lot around even in non-e-commerce businesses around digital marketing efforts. We talked about TikTok, for example, earlier. You don't want to take someone from Facebook to run TikTok and then sort of kind of move between the two and just do it once. You want to sort of be on that platform for a long time. So, you know, how are you going to build for success for that? You know, how are you going to make sure that it's sustainable for the long term and not just sort of a one-off campaign? So really look at your organization, you know, quite hard if you're at a managerial level, but you can talk to upper management and talk about how the team needs to change and adapt towards the strategy you've got at the beginning. So I think they're the sort of, you know, three key things I would say that are very important. I know we could have gone into the whole technicality part, but, you know, I think everyone else does, everyone always talks about, you know, making sure that you've got the new tech and you've got the great product features and your UX, UI and your customer experience is second to none. But I think a lot of people don't talk about the, the challenges uh, outside of that, outside of technology-driven challenges, where I think you can have the best technology, but like I said to you, it won't move anywhere. And sort of my last one, sorry, if I can have a number four, it would be don't always look at the competition if it does not fit your business case. So it's very easy to say, oh, Amazon does this, so we should do that. Amazon have a very strong business case, a very different business case to what Google have or to what eBay has. And they all have their own unique business propositions and USPs. So you really need to find your own and then sort of compare yourself to someone who's very similar to you, not just 
someone who's best in class. Headless commerce has been done to death, so we took a slightly different tack for the topic and explored how not to do headless. In this clip, our guests Shane Lenton, the CIO at Q Clothing, and Paul Williams, Solution Engineering APAC at Commerce Tools, gave us their top tips on how to know when it might actually be time to go headless with your business. You'll hear Paul answer Adrian first before Shane pitches in. What what uh, what would you say are your absolute top tips for knowing you know absolutely knowing when headless is going to be the right uh, the right fit for your business and really yeah and and to make sure that you're avoiding some of the pitfalls that we've talked about. I'm happy to go first. So mine would be get educated. You know, be educated. Go into these conversations. Ask lots of questions. Do your research around what it is, um, and make sure you're you're well informed. The other is do it for the right reasons. So your platform is absolutely burning. Maybe you're losing staff because of it or you, your current development team are looking to further educate or move beyond the technology stack that they're used to doing and you've kind of potentially got a bit, you know, not just the stack itself, but the, the, everything that surrounds it is burning on you. And so, you know, you can help invigorate it, an organization by looking at new technology and enabling that. And the other is um, obviously make sure you've got your back office in order and that you're a business prepared and ready to make this kind of shift change. Um, because as, as we pointed out, it opens up so much more opportunity, but it also creates so much more challenges through that process. That would be my top three, I guess. Yeah, I mean, very much in line with, um, with Paul's comments there, I think. And I always say to people when I'm, when I'm talking around technology and particularly in retail, it's, you know, often people will say to me, I need to change platforms because uh, my stock's a disaster, as an example. I sort of say, like, <laughs> moving to a platform is not going to fix your people in the process, you know. So to that point and, and where I had someone sort of, you know, when I, when I asked them when they said they were heading down that, that headless approach, um, and I sort of said, you know, what are the main drivers? And the first one they said was speed. And when I sort of challenged them a little bit around that, and I said, well, you know, what exploration have you done on your current platform to understand where the bottlenecks are, what the challenges are, you know, whether it's it's catalog size, whether it's you know, whether it's images or you know, content, whatever it is. And I think it's important just to you know. Just because what you're using today isn't necessarily perfect or working well doesn't mean that suddenly you're a, you know, a perfect customer for headless. I think you need to understand, firstly, what the challenges are that you're currently having and to understand if they can be overcome on, on your existing platform, but also have a look at headless and, and to Paul's point, have an informed view or whether it's yourself or have you know the right people around you to actually identify what the opportunities are and, and if they make sense for your business and and if they can't be achieved or that that sort of you know that roof is is being hit because you you know you need to take the business to the next level. I think it's understanding you know all the individual sort of requirements or, or challenges or, or things that you can't achieve um, to then validate that that you know changing to a whole different approach is going to um, enable that. Uh, I just think that idea of I've got a problem, 
Um, Headless is going to be a silver bullet. He's probably one of the biggest disasters uh, waiting to happen. Um, I think sometimes, you know, and a change in technology can alleviate a lot of problems, but this isn't, you know, without a clear understanding of what the issues are and, and, and if Headless will solve them and if your current platform can't solve them and really have that clear matrix of, of things you want to achieve that Headless will deliver for you above and beyond, um, I think it's, it's a dangerous sort of misconception just to, you know, to follow the buzzword and think that, you know, that it's going to be easy. But flip that on its head, massive opportunity with the right informed decision that can transform businesses and, and Paul touched on, you know, some of the, the, the enterprise size businesses. And, and, and yes, you do see some examples of some of those businesses running on some of the, we say traditional, but they're still fairly modern platforms and, and they're constantly iterating and growing, but there is a genuine opportunity in, in reviewing your tech stack and, and executing, you know, headless with, you know, with a real, microservices approach to um to your architecture as a whole can you know can take some of those businesses can be as i say defining can can, can be the difference between those businesses you know just plotting along and, and and doing okay even at a large scale to um you know being world leaders in their space episode six featured a little bit of crystal ball gazing with axel winter one of the brightest forward thinkers and technology strategists in Southeast Asia. In this clip, we asked him for some predictions on how the metaverse might impact the world of commerce. Where we're talking about, you know, obviously the metaverse is, is starting to become, you know, a, a lot more talked about. Are you, have you got any predictions for sort of where you're seeing that potentially would play across into, into the, into the worlds, of, worlds of commerce? I think this is a difficult uh, question. Because if, if I go by, let's say, what Mark's view is, then it's using normal glasses and you kind of are just by, by the merit of having a special glass being immersed in the metaverse, right? And now these glasses don't exist today and I still struggle a little bit with understanding how they work because I do have an Oculus 2 set and but when I wear it, of course, the idea is it blacks out all the vision the eye has, and you can just see these two small monitors in front of you. Right? And this blacking out thing is, and having this, this clunky thing in front of you, again, why it offers opportunity and excitement, like a lot of people obviously use it for gaming and so on. But on the other side, is it a mass, everybody has a type like a mobile phone type of thing, not sure. I I think that this is where the glass idea comes in. So I think there has to be some more R and D there to create a better entry point. Now, if I go back in history, you know, I, my hometown is Hanover, which happens to be the city where and it, just, it doesn't even exist anymore. It's the biggest IT show in the world. Uh, it was called CBIT. It existed for I think twenty twenty five years. So I met people like Jack Tramiel. Uh, Steve was there, and, and I mean, again, uh, earlier days, it, it was kind of, uh, uh, I remember when they launched Next, uh, I mean, when Atari was big in the, in the, in the home computer, home computer space and so on. Uh, so all of these times, right? And then 
because my hometown is not that big, it's about half a million people, then you you kind of know where people would be going in the evenings and you can meet all of these uh, uh, guys and girls, of course, right? And to that degree, SGI, uh, Silicon Graphics, uh, always, also used to have every year a stand, I remember, it was fascinating. So we were, I mean, I was, I, I know I was like 17 or 16 or something, and we would queue up at the, at their stand and, and trying to get an opportunity to use the headset, which actually would, would allow you to, to watch a bit of a 3D environment and you get a glove and you can touch things and so on. And of course they had a the whole mainframe there uh, at the stand and the headset was connected to a very heavy pair of cables. Uh, and so was the glove. So, so there was some effort there. Now, from that perspective, we we moved to the Oculus quite a bit, but of course I don't have to have the mainframe next to me anymore. But on the other side, I still have a clunky headset. So this is what I meant is that I'm thinking is that people have been trying this for a very long time uh, as in the full immersive VR type of environment, not yet. Now the other part which which Mark kind of said was the overall integration across corporate uh, borders, right? So you could have a standard, like, more or less like our APIs and even some UI standard exists today for the for a mobile and, and web browser usage and mostly mobile anyway nowadays. And then, okay, you could do that in a metaverse as well that you find kind of common standards for all of these things. But is it like, because now I'm hearing Microsoft is going to do their own thing. Facebook is, is obviously becoming an infrastructure provider, uh, moving a bit out of the Facebook's, you know, social media type of game in that sense, getting rid of all of their problems there. So again, just providing the, the platform and who knows what Google and Amazon and others are going to do, uh, and, and new entrants. And there are some obviously also in Thailand and the region. And so for me, this is already doubtful that can you create really such a standard in today's world? Because it's not like the internet when we started it. I mean, the started the, the founders generation, so to speak. I mean, that that was everybody wanted to work together. A lot of the people there uh, were from universities to begin with, or government institutions, and they loved doing standards and, and linking up with each other. Right? That was kind of it was new, it was exciting. Uh, nobody could link up anything right uh, at the time, and, and so that was all good, right? And but today, I think there's a lot of people who also see this more as a, well, if I create the island, isn't that much better than if I if I'm part of a city type of type of attitude, right? Now if, if that if that is gonna go down that path, I also I also don't know. And then how how, how would it work? Again, I'm just a simple tech guy, right? So I, I think about this very pragmatically. Now assuming Mark is correct and there is a common platform which every company subscribes for now, then I think we do advance. If I can use Facebook Messenger, let's say, or, or VR Messenger in the future, and um, whatever product from Zoom and Google and so on, and Microsoft, uh, in a similar way, I can just tap and pull things together, capture people. Actually, how I communicate doesn't matter anymore. I just I just ping you and, and others, and we can have kind of a virtual meeting there. Who, who cares who provides the software? Well, that would be cool. I'm just not too sure how far this goes. Now, what happens today, though, is there is an on-ramp where people, of course, are engaging in avatars and, and and trying smaller worlds, smaller interactions out. And I think that's good because that's the way we start defining and refining uh, how the space in the future is going to look like. Some of these 
Some of these is going to go away, of course, as you can imagine, uh, and others are going to become bigger over time because consumers and people love it. So uh, for me, this is good, but it's too early to say actually where is the value, how business models could be easily established in that. I think that it will take time and if if the past kind of taught us anything is that it's not, neither black or white. It will evolve into, into a mesh of things. Sustainability is only growing in importance both for our planet and consumers. So for this episode, we decided to explore a small part of that broader conversation. To discuss re-commerce and the circular economy, Adrian spoke to Kristen Kaur, the co-founder and co-CEO of DesignerX, the world's largest peer-to-peer designer dress sharing platform, and Edwina Morgan, General Manager, Customer and Strategy at Salvo Stores. In this clip, Kirsten is the first to answer Adrian's question on niches in the circular economy before Edwina chimes in. How important would both of you say it is to, to finding a niche within the world of, of re-commerce or can being a generalist be a way to, to be successful? Yeah, I really believe like with the growth of this economy, with the circular economy, I think that uh, I think we mentioned um, on our call that um, there's going to be niche businesses that are going to do one thing and they're going to do it really well. And I think that's what we should focus on. And that's why we double down on rental and we try and extract as much value out of an item. Um, Rent the Runway, they, you know, consumers love them for their subscription model and their workwear. So, all that, so they do play a great part. They are America's largest dry cleaner, you know, because of what they do. So it is a completely different model. We're in two markets already. They're, they're you know, in one. It's very hard to scale. Um, and so when we came into it, it was all about a global mindset. How can we reach as many customers because this is a global problem and we can have global impact. So that's where the peer-to-peer kind of model came for us. But I think, yeah, the real, real play apart, rent the runway, and there's different ways of doing it. So I think with businesses, they need to look at what products they're selling or what services they're offering and speak to their customers and work out what from beginning of the product to the end and what their customer wants to do with it and for how long. So I think then you need to then assess what circular economy product or service you can tap into and solve solve like one problem for your consumer and 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 that and that that would be your your key piece of advice in in terms of for any business trying to get into this that you know let let's let's not try and eat the elephant all at once and and pick just pick out one thing to focus on yeah do it really well and pick a niche circular economy type business model that can really help you um, and solve that specific problem that your customer is experiencing or yeah if, you, if your product's being used for a month then where does it go and how can you make that an easy transition for your customer because that's what they want customers want to be involved so if you can make it as easy as possible that would be my advice yeah and I think you know kind of um, building on from that you know I think um, to you know kind of those points that the key players over time will will actually find their value proposition within that circular economy and I think everybody has a part to play right and stuff and you know kind of I think that that will take shaping in different forms some more general than others you know kind of some really targeting those gaps or those niche markets um, that need to be addressed and you know kind of I know for, for Salvo stores at the moment you know we are looking at what are the unique things we actually bring to the table 
all um, around e-commerce and around um, circularity and, you know, kind of one of, one of the things that um, is really unique to our business is the social impact. So, you know, kind of that impact that we have by, you know, selling secondhand and, you know, kind of having that environmental impact also pushes into that social impact, you know, which is which is pretty humbling um, when you actually think about that support that, that is provided out to, to Australian communities. We're also looking at ways that we can provide um, meaningful pathways into meaningful work um, through volunteering. So, um, you know, kind of digital or e-commerce is quite a new thing for us. We actually had our second birthday this year of, you know, replatforming and actually launching um, our e-commerce offering, um, which has been hugely successful for us. But, you know, you've also got that human side where we've had volunteering opportunities and we've been able to upskill people with digital skills and, um, you know, they've gone on to, to find meaningful employment, you know, kind of which, which, is, which is really cool. And, you know, kind of I think, you know, for us it's really about finding that place as, as, you know, kind of the um, landscape continues to change and shift and really finding where do we actually add value into, into that economy and into that ecosystem. And I think, you know, kind of as Kirsten's pointed out, that's an individual journey for each organisation um, in terms of how they actually go about um, addressing the needs of their customers and, you know, even down to the point, do they do it themselves? Do they partner with somebody in the charity sector that's got um, some of those expertise to, to do that? Do they partner um, with other organisations and, and what have you? So I think for everyone that's kind of going on that journey but really answering what's right um, for your customer and how do you actually add value to the ecosystem? Stuart Thornton knows a thing or two about buy now, pay later businesses. After all, he was the co-founder and CEO of Hula, which really was a trailblazer in the sector in Southeast Asia. In this clip, Stuart gave some advice for any BNPL company looking to tap into the B2B sector instead of focusing on consumers as BNPL is most famous for. If you were a buy now, pay later company coming into market or looking to join, looking to join the foray, if they were looking to focus on B2B, what would you be advising that they probably need to be doing before they, you know, before they proceed? Yeah, it's a super question. I think first and foremost, the consumer by now pay later companies are fundamentally quite different. You know, when you look at uh, sort of data, a lot of consumers' data risk is about the emotion and, and the affordability of payment at that moment in time, whereas um, you know, B2B tends to be around, you know, the people that are in the company, the cash flow, the, uh, the, you know, the sort of uh, balance sheets, profit and loss. So all of these data points, uh, compliance perhaps, are all actually more, uh, more important as a, you know, on, on that sort of side. And typically those risk management, uh, it, that risk management infrastructure isn't set up to sort of support that. But as I said, there are some fundamental benefits that are very similar, you know, for, for the buy now, uh, buy now, pay later and B2B space. And, and really, I think the big piece of advice, and I was given this actually at the very beginning, uh, you know, before we sort of set up, you know, Hula, I remember the, com I'm smiling because I can remember the conversation in Starbucks, uh, you know, here and the person that we spoke to, uh, and she gave me sort of three really, really sort of important tips. Number one, you know, risk is ultimately the, the priority. And, and again, there's been a little bit of, you know, press about that, but it comes down to, I think, your you know, sort of focusing on the health of your business rather than growth, you have to manage that sort of risk, you know, carefully and conservatively, you know, to go and create that value in the market, both for the customers, but also your own, 
um, you know, your own health of the company and as a service provider. You know, two and, and jumping onto that point is disciplined growth. I think that that's really important to you know to go and structure. I think it's growth that you know care, careful growth rather than sort of venture growth is important. It can be achieved, and then ultimately it's to to manage, manage that cash flow. You know, that's the most important thing when you start looking at, especially in the B two B space. Perhaps tickets are bigger, getting access to the right you know sort of lending uh, lending models. You know, behind the business. You know whether that be banks themselves, for example, is super important to, to manage that sort of carefully. Again, for the health of the business to ultimately provide that healthy service provider, um, you know, platform for um, the buyers and suppliers that um, form part of that marketplace in the future. And finally, in our most recent episode, we dove into the world of recruitment in e-commerce with Nathan Bush, director at eSuite Talent and host of the Add to Cart podcast. Um, would you have? Your three top tips for any company who's looking to hire new staff for their e-commerce division. You know, what what would you say are the, probably the the biggest things that they should focus on where it comes to needing to add muscle to their team? All right, so I'm not going to go airy fairy here. I'm going to make it pretty practical. All right, so I think the first thing I would say is if you haven't embraced flexible work, if you're still hanging on to, I've built this beautiful space. I don't understand why people aren't coming into the office. I want to be here. I want to be with them. They should want to be here. Get over it. Because even if you like working that way, the first question that we always get asked by candidates now is how often do I have to be in the office? And it doesn't mean that they don't want to be in the office is that they now know that to do their jobs and to do their jobs effectively, they don't need to be in the office all the time. So, and and I think a big part of that is don't think of it as people are lazy and they want to work in their pajamas and they just don't want it. They, people want to make the most of their time. That's what they're thinking. So that if, if working in the office for two days a week while the whole team is there is an effective use of the time, can justify traveling half an hour, an hour on a bus or a train in the morning. Absolutely, they will do it because they know they'll get bang out of their work day. It's not a laziness. It's a effectiveness. The second one is, is you've got to pay well. And I don't mean paying overs every time. We find we get the best results from understanding where the absolute top tier is that people are willing to pay and then working down. So it's, it's not so much going, this person has to come in at 85K. And that's it. It's like saying, this is the experience we want for the absolute right person. We'd go to hundred, but it could be anywhere from 70 to hundred. Um, and just have being flexible with that based on experience and being able to have those honest conversations with people is really important. And the third thing, I think you've got to be able to tell your story. So it's no good now being the biggest retailer turning over millions of dollars with 200 stores and brand names and go look beating your chest and go look how big we are look how good we are why wouldn't you want to come work here you've got to tell the story of the why so we're finding that when we're putting opportunities out in market that have a real story whether that be a sustainability story uh, a founder that people go i love the way that she works i really want to work under her um, or, or a team culture that they've built through social and they've already told that story so much easier to get people through rather than going huge head office you'll love it there's huge career opportunities we're turning over billions that story is not resonating as much anymore people want real meaning in their work 
There you have it. More e-commerce insights than you can shake a stick at. I hope you enjoyed our best of episode. Keep your eyes and ears peeled for the next episode of Commerce Talk with Smart OSE. Dropping soon. But it's goodbye for now, and thanks for listening.